my friends and welcome back to The War Room, which is our interview series as part of the Clone Star Pod. I am your host, Sean Ferrick, and joining me is the wonderful author of such books as A Dangerous Trade and Escape Route, both of which are based around Star Trek Prodigy. And of course, Shadows Have Offended, which is a TNG tie-in novel as well. But there is not just Star Trek, there is also Halo, and there is, of course, original works as well. This author is a master teaching us how to create villains, fan fiction, into original fiction, a wonderful erotica, and, of course, teaching us how to create tension as well. Uh, she has been nominated for numerous awards, including the Philip K. Dick Award, and I am very, very pleased to welcome Cassandra Clark here today. How are you today? I am good. Happy to be here. Excellent. Excellent. I'm delighted to have you here. Um, it is. What's it like where you are in the world right now? Is it a nice day? Is it a bright day? A wet day? Summer. I'm not a big summer person. Um, I don't like the heat, but it's it's pretty nice, uh, you know, as far as summer goes. 80s. Or I'm not sure what that is. In uh, I, th- I, th- I, th- I think I know enough about Farnage and I'm like, that's a nice day. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah um, not too hot, not too cold. Uh, that is great. I was actually funny enough. I was talking to a friend of mine earlier who's just back from Australia, and I said, "How was Australia?" And he said, "Cold." And I went, "I've never read that sentence before." <laughs> uh, um, so uh, yeah, climate change, folks, it's happening. <laughs> um, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about all things you. Wow, that's <laughs> that feels like a lot of pressure, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's grand. No pressure at all. No pressure at all. Just need to, you know, things, your blood type, uh, you know, kind of a list of your fears, the usual. Um, no, we we wanted to reach out and speak to you because um, obviously, like you've, you, we're obviously mainly a Star Trek based podcast, but we are, you know, all types of media, all very, very welcome. And because I know one of my co-hosts is screaming, ask about the Halo books. But um uh, I what caught my eye straight away is everything right now for me is so Star Trek prodigy, Star Trek prodigy, Star Trek prodigy. So I'm gonna. My first question is to you: How has it been creating this these additional stories in what has become, I think, one of the most discussed mm-hmm. and difficult to watch uh, Star Treks at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it was it was really fun. They, I mean, they reached out to me and and just asked, "Hey, do you want to write in Star Trek Prodigy?" And this was actually before I think the show had been officially announced. Um, this was a this was a few years ago. Um, so I was like, "Oh wow, they're doing a kids show, and I get to write in it." That was like super exciting. Um, so yeah, it's it's really fun. I, I find I find Star Trek Prodigy just like super charming. Um, like the show is just like incredibly charming, and it feels very sort of Star Trekky, like kind of that sense of wonder um, that is, you know, such a big part of Star Trek. Um, and I feel like it captures that really well because it is, you know, for younger audiences. Um, so that was like, that was really fun to get to play around with. Um, and this is also my first book for for middle, what's called middle grade in the publishing world, basically kind of eight to 12 year olds. Um, so it was fun to kind of try to capture that voice and to think like, what's going to appeal to kids you know, because what they want from a book is not necessarily what an adult wants, right? So kind mm-hmm. of trying to capture that voice, but still make it feel like Star Trek, right? Um, so something that would appeal to young readers who maybe haven't seen every single episode of Star Trek 30 times, um, which I feel is a lot of the people reading the <laughs> the, t- the tie-in novels for the other shows. Um, 
but that would also like capture that sense of Star Trek and make them love Star Trek and want to go back and maybe watch those shows um, either now or when they're a little older. So it was kind of just like a fun challenge, I guess. And the we've been we've been fortunate enough that we've we've spoken to a few authors who have worked in tie-in media as well and everyone has sort of similar stories and then wildly differing stories as well so with you've worked with the prodigy team and of course you've also written a next generation tie-in novel as well were the, were the processes were they quite different or were they very similar in that TNG obviously has now been off the air for a couple of years that's all I that's the way I'm going to describe <laughs> that uh, and Prodigy of course is quite current yeah the processes were actually really different um which was I, I guess not that surprising um because like you said one has been off the air for years and the other is was, when I was writing them it hadn't even aired yet um I actually got sneak or was supposed to get sneak preview episodes and then I didn't but I did get this the uh the scripts ahead of time so I was actually able to read the scripts of the first 10 episodes before the show had aired. So it made me feel cool. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. wow. Yeah. Like yeah. Knowledge. Um, but yeah, so I'm just like with, with TNG, they basically said, write whatever you want, right? You, you Here's a story. You, you decide a story, you pitch some story ideas. We'll pick the one we like the best, um, which was actually much harder than you might think that was really challenging um there's a lot of pressure with tng because it's so beloved and trying to come up with a story that fits that that world and its vibe was that that was like wow it's a lot of pressure um so that was kind of how the tng went it was like there it was like i pitched an idea and then i worked with them and on the canon and all of that with um with Prodigy, they actually gave me the outline, right? So they like basically said, this is the story we want you to tell, which I kind of liked a little bit better. <laughs> it took some of the pressure off, um, but it was kind of cool because it meant I got to write sort of an intermediary, intermediary stories between the two seasons or release. I'm not sure if they're really seasons or releases, however they're framing that, Um where, you know, after the the first 10 episodes, my books kind of take place in, the, in between that. Um, or my first one does, and then the second one kind of takes place after um, the next set of episodes. So mm -hmm. um, it was kind of like, it was kind of cool to sort of serve as a bridge and to be sort of like, oh, this is one of their secret little adventures. So it it felt like it was more tied into the show than TNG did. Because the TNG book was just, I mean, it was technically took place, I think, around the seventh season or something, but it didn't feel integrated into the show the way the Prodigy books did, because there were references to things that actually happened on the show. Um, and, and then it was like, oh, it's kind of serving as a bridge, right, <laughs> from how they get from point A to point B. Um, so that was really cool. Um, but yeah, I would say, like I said, the, the processes did feel really different. Like just with Prodigy, it felt a little bit more like top secret and I have like access to stuff that people other people don't have um you know I'm, I'm reading the scripts and getting to know these characters before other people are getting to know the characters um so <clears throat> that was kind of cool and made me it just kind of felt like I was sort of part of something new um as opposed to coming into something that's been around for a long time and then having the weight of all those expectations of what <laughs> because people love TNG and like they have their this very set ideas of these characters um so I'd say that's kind of the biggest difference but yeah I I, I totally appreciate that as well because you know if we think of even obviously 
Star Trek Picard's third season, which was sort of a big, massive reunion for all of these TNG characters. And the internet had its opinions, uh, as it <laughs> tends to do. <laughs> uh, but it, it is, and it's, it, it's, it's funny, but it's also, there is pressure inherent with, okay, you know, the fact that it's been off the air for so long, that, right, that is the story of the next generation. Oh, you're going to add something to the story? Well, I don't know if we can let you away with that. It's like, but isn't it fun to add to the story of that as well? Who's to say that the episodes we got were the only adventures of the Enterprise D? Right. Well, I think that's kind of the idea with the books, um, especially the one I wrote, was that it's like, it's a bonus adventure. Um, I know they they did some books that actually took place after the show ended, um, that were supposed to kind of extend it, although I'm, you know, Picard probably wiped them out um, mm. in terms of canonicity. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how, I mean, honestly, whenever I write time, especially with the Star Trek books, I, I approach it that way. It's like, this is just a bonus episode, right? Like, um, you know, they have, there's lots of adventures they're having that we don't see. And this is one of them that you get to find out about. And I suppose then this leads me to the question of what brought you to Star Trek? Have you been a fan forever and ever? Was it something that you picked up on later on? Or, just being bluntly honest, did you just say, i got to do something different? You know, I've never done Star Trek before. That's it. What's, what's a warp core? Grant, we'll go with that. <laughs> i could, I got to say, I could not imagine doing that. Um, <laughs> like never watching an episode of Star Trek and then writing a book, uh, book set of the universe. <laughs> Um, no, I've, I've been a Star Trek fan for a long time. Um, TNG was actually like my, you know, my series. Um, it was on the air when I was a kid. And so I remember watching it when I was really young um, and then revisiting it. I think it was in grad school when I was older. Um, I watched the entire series again um, as an adult. And then that kind of kicked off all my like start by sort of re my emergent Star Trek obsession. Um, that was also around the time that the movies were being the the Chris Pine movies were being released. So I got all into that. And then I went back and I was watching like the original series, which I had never watched. I started watching Deep Space Nine again. Um, and so I kind of got caught back up in the Star Trek world for a long time. Um, and then they actually, I got invited to write the TNG book because of my Halo novels. So the editor, um, my editor with the TNG novels had read my Halo books and enjoyed them. And he, I was at a Halo convention and he came up, we were at a Halo convention and he was like, hey, would you be interested in writing for Star Trek? And I was like, would I? I would love to write <laughs> for Star Trek. Because I had, like when I was in that midst of that obsession, I had read all the old TNG novels. I forgot to mention that, that were from like the 90s. Um, I had like would buy them and, you know, use bookstores and read them. Um, so it was super exciting to kind of be like, wow, I, this is like, I didn't think I would ever get to write a TNG novel because I didn't even think they were still publishing them. Um, so it was, I obviously, I leapt at the chance. I was super excited. Um, and then when they asked me to write for Prodigy, I was like, of course, like, I'm not going to say no to Star Trek. It, it doesn't matter what it is. If they ask me to write Star Trek, I will say yes. <laughs> it's like, we'd like you to write this new book. Uh, it will cost uh, about $150,000 for you to do this, but you get to write a Star Trek But Well, I'd be a fool not to do this. Uh, <laughs> um, but then, well, actually, that's really fascinating. So I, I'm going to put my hands up straight away. I am... I wouldn't have much knowledge of the Halo universe. So, uh, again, what brings you to Halo? How does that develop? Because, so say if Star Trek amazingly came, the, the work with Star Trek came from your 
from your Halo novels. Was Halo then your, I'm going to go on camp outside and I'm going to make sure they gave me this assignment. I'm going to go, I've already written the Halo book. I just need them to publish it for me. How, what was that process? Yeah, Halo, so telling novels in general are pretty much invite only. Um, you know, you write your original work and then you kind of prove that you can meet a deadline and you could write a good story. Um, and then that's when the the tie-in novels, kind of, the tie-in editors are like, hey, would you be interested in writing for this? Um, and so that was another one where I got, they reached out to me um, because they they were they said they were looking for new voices um, to write Halo books. Um, <clears throat> and I had just released a science fiction novel that one of the editors had enjoyed. Um, but I I was excited about that as well because I was really into Halo when I was in college. Um, I had even written a paper about it in graduate school. <laughs> like I wrote, like I was in like a media <laughs> studies class and I wrote a paper about Cortana is one of the characters in Halo. Um, so I was like, wow. And I hadn't thought about Halo in years when I was invited to do this. Um, and so I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll have to refresh my Halo knowledge. Um, so that was kind of how I, I came into that. It was another invitation um, that, again, I was like, yeah, I'm familiar with this universe. I, I mean, I'm familiar enough with it, or at least the early parts of it, um, that I feel comfortable that I can go in and write. And I had always enjoyed it. Um, that one's a little weird because the universe is a little a little odd, a little morally questionable, but you're not allowed to acknowledge <laughs> that it's morally <laughs> questionable. Um, like the way that the Spartans are created is a little, little sketchy. Um, so uh, that one was, it was kind of fun to like, see how far I could push that. And then the, they're like, no, you can't, you can't acknowledge that the government is bad. Um, so that was, it was kind of fun to sort of play around with that a little bit. That sounds, that sounds like uh, definitely a challenge because I yeah. presume you you, you want to write these you know protagonists that people can get behind and we root behind, but also you're like it, it reminds me of um uh the I'm not sure if you're familiar with, familiar with that Mitchell and Webb sketch where they're sitting there in World War Two era uniforms but not the ones you'd want to be wearing right. and you know one goes hands. Are we the buddies? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like, have seen that many times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not quite like that because, like the the hero, the Spartans, they're not they're fine. It's it's more like how they came to be is a little. It's like ooh, I don't know. I feel like the TV show that everybody hated, um, but I thought. Yeah. Was I don't know. Everybody hated it. Um, they kind of were like, maybe this, eh, like they, they'll kind of, they'll kind of tease it a little bit. But at the end of the day, it's like, well, the Spartans are supposed to be heroes and they're saving humans from these evil aliens. And that, that much is pretty black and white. Um, so you can kind of, you just sort of lean into that and be like, let's not talk about the fact that they were war orphans used in a science experiment. I know you said you're not familiar with Halo, but <laughs> so I feel like I start talking about it. You're like, what are you talking about? Because Halo lore is very complex. Um, there's layers to it. There's lots of different factions, and it gets gets more and more layered. The more you know, the more the the more the games were released, the more complicated it got. That is one thing. It's, it's funny. So in my in my kind of social group, you have a lot of Trekkies, obviously, and you know we all you know we we you know pat ourselves on the back for how much we know about Star Trek, and then uh, for example, one of the one of the people group, huge Warhammer forty k fan, massive massive fan, and we started talking to him, and we started to realize that oh, we have really specific knowledge about one thing, <laughs> yeah. one property. Yeah, it's like, and then yeah. he was telling us all these things, I'm like. 
oh, how does anyone have the headspace to remember all of these things? <laughs> uh, and I can imagine, I mean, like, you know, your work in the worlds of Halo and Star Trek. I mean, you know, do you remember how to do things like math or, you know, <laughs> how to drive a car or something? You're just like, hang on, I've got to remember all these things, Spartans and Romulans and ah. Yeah, well, it's, it's funny because like I kind of I feel like I forget about it until it comes back up. Like with the Halo stuff, I feel like there was so much I had forgotten and then I went and I watched some of the cinematics um, and I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that now. And it start, it just starts to come back to you. Um, you know, when I start talking about Halo with people, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, there's this and there's this. And oh, OK, yeah, now I remember. Um, but I think it kind of gets partitioned away, it's sort of like archived. And then you can go back and, and retrieve it as needed. Um, would you did you find obviously all the stories are separate? Did you find any kind of themes that might move between the two in terms of your own writing like was there anything that you found oh actually that from the halo world might work in shadows have offended or you know obviously they came after the halo books but i'm going to stop my sentence there there's the no, question that's, that's a really interesting question um i actually feel like the halo books and the prodigy books have a lot in common um because the halo books were actually ya novels um and so they're about a group of normal teenagers. It's sort of like the plot of uh, Red Dawn, if you remember that movie. Where I do, yep. The Soviets invade the United, like invade like small town USA and the, the high school football team fights back. Um, it's sort of that, but instead of the Soviets, it's aliens. Um, so you had these sort of group of normal kids who get sucked into this white, this bigger world. And Prodigy is basically the same way, right? You have these these kids who don't know anything about Starfleet, they've never even heard of it, and they get sucked into the Star Trek world. It's, you know, so the, in that in that way, they were kind of similar. And I mean, the difference was that with the Halo books, those were original characters. So I could kind of do whatever I wanted with them. Whereas with Prodigy, they were set, but it's still that same kind of idea of like kids or teenagers learning about a world that the audience is intimately familiar with and sort of so you're sort of seeing that world um through their eyes so it's a chance to kind of see it in a new way i guess um which is something that i kind of played around with and explored in certainly in the halo books but i think that's sort of baked into prodigy uh, like in the show itself i think that's a big theme in the show of sort of what does star what is starfleet look like to these these people who have never heard of Starfleet but live in the universe and that's kind of an interesting idea to me I thought that was I just thought it was a unique twist um in the show itself that I I liked how it did that I I think so I remember um if I suppose we go back to the very first announcement of Prodigy um and there was just this plethora of thoughts of okay great we're gonna have a new story new new exploration okay they're not federation all right this is fascinating right as oh oh it's a younger audience and everyone was kind of, i think there was a lot of prejudice going into the show um which i think sadly has affected thing you know the decisions that have been made since but hope is not lost season two will arrive not sure in what medium but it will um and then having watched it you can see actually it is a it's a i think it's a fascinating peek behind the curtain of both the the great federation and starfleet and it's it's exploring the galaxy and you've got this pristine ship and hologram janeway and you've also got it's relatively easy to infiltrate starfleet as well because it's so wonderful and the world is so great and everything should where would the baddies be well they're 
wolf in sheep's clothing as we discover possible massive spoilers for Prodigy there. But I'm assuming if you're watching or listening to this, you have seen at least some of it. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I do remember that announcement and everybody, I mean, Star Trek in general, I think it gets the internet riled up. Um, and people, like you said earlier, people have very strong opinions about the new, the new versions of Star Trek. And I remember them having very strong opinions about the the movies, the new movies, um, mm. new Trek. I cannot, J.J. Abrams. Um, I remember the drama when those came out. Um, so I think it's sort of inevitable. But I do think I do think because Prodigy was so different from what we've seen from Star Trek before, I think that may have been where some of that reticence was coming from. Um, but I, I, for one, found it kind of, I found it kind of refreshing. I sort of like seeing new takes on Star Trek, um, as opposed to sort of trying to repeat the same thing. I like, I think this new wave of Star Trek shows, I like how they're trying to do different genres. I, if that makes sense. Like it's all Star Trek, yeah. it's all science fiction, space opera kind of stuff, but you know, you have Lower Decks, which makes it into a sitcom, Right, Prodigy, which makes it into a kids show, and you have uh, Brave New World, Brave New World, Strange New Worlds, that sort of classic Trek, but still feels modern, like kind of updating the classic Trek format to sort of modern sensibilities and interlocking um, sort of overarching art plot, plot arcs and stuff. Um, and I, I will admit, I didn't watch all of Discovery, but I'm sure it did cool stuff too. <laughs> I watched the first season and then kind of dropped off, but um that's just something I'm, I'm kind of enjoying about the the trek renaissance we're having um I, trek renaissance perfect description uh i love it and and even in that description as well you, you clearly there's something for everyone and if you don't like one maybe you'll like the another one and that i think is sometimes gets lost in the twitter verse of yeah. <laughs> uh of, of of discussion and i'm not saying i'm innocent of that either just to throw that out there as well i'm i'm not sitting here with a holier than thou look on everything um uh, but i am holier than that no uh <laughs> but so away from say star trek and time media i mean you have you you have a bloody impressive bibliography i say that because as a person who's tried to write i know how difficult it is to finish one project let alone what what you've done so i know obviously you have your ba in uh english you've got your masters in creative writing as well so presumably you've been just scribbling away for your whole life yeah um i mean i think that's probably accurate i, I was actually really into art like visual art when i was a kid um i would sort of write stories and then illustrate them um and i had intended to go into visual arts when i went to college um but I kind of got burned out on it in high school because I took a bunch of art classes and stuff. Um, and so I took creative writing as sort of a, you know, like, oh, I'll try something different. <laughs> and I wound up like, oh, I love, I, I really do love writing. Um, and I, I, of course, had written stuff when I was younger too. Um, so that kind of set me on that track of um, kind of getting an MFA and everything, um, which, so originally I was writing like literary fiction and then kind of branched off into genre fiction and science fiction. Um, and so it just kind of just sort of compounded from there. Um, and I, you know, I write quickly and I always like all writers always have like a billion ideas, more ideas than we'll ever be able to to write down. Um, so I just like it's like I finished one book and I start another one and I'm just like, I'll figure out what I'm going to do with it when I'm done. <laughs> That's kind of my process. Um, so I've definitely been really lucky to kind of have the opportunities and stuff that I've had to to play or to write different genres and different age groups and to write tie-in fiction. Um, so I'm definitely grateful for that. There are 
you, you, there's so many stories of, so, you know, when you're doing the first pitch and the first publication of, you know, the 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 sludge pile of like, you know, your book goes into a queue and it sits there. And uh, and obviously you are one of the stories of you got out of that and you, you got bullet. What was that initial process like? Because um, I've I've been through it. I know others have been through it. It, it is. It's it's hard. Yeah, it is. I was my my experience with that was actually a little different. Um, so like sort of the standard process and traditional publishing is that you you submit to agents or you query agents and then an agent picks up your book and then they shop it around and hopefully you sell it to a publisher. Um, I actually got went backwards. Um, so I had written a novel that I was querying agents and my query was bad. It was bad. Like I read it a few years later and I was like, oh, this is, su- this sucks. No wonder nobody wanted to like read my novel. <laughs> um, but so I wasn't having any luck with agents, but it was actually a British small press called Angry Robot um, who okay. they had an open door submission um, month where they would look at unagent and manuscripts. Um, and it was actually their first, it was their first ever one. They've done it a few times since. And so I submitted to that. And so that was actually how I got my first book deal um, because I got selected through that process. Um, And so then once I had the the book deal, once you have a book deal, it's super easy to get an agent because then they're like, that's free money. (laughs) You don't have to do any work. Um, So because I got, I had a book deal, I was able to sign with an agent. And so that was sort of how my writing career got started. Um, So I originally um, published with this small press and then kind of, moved on from there to larger presses. Um, and then I still also, I still like to work with small presses too. I kind of have done a little bit of everything in terms of, you know, sort of the publishing publishing world. So, but that was also, that was like 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Um, and I know the, the process has changed. Honestly, it seems so much harder now um, when I see people on Twitter talking about querying and, and trying to get a publishing here. I'm just like, gosh, it sounds so hard. And I know when I came in, I would see people who had been around a long time being like, gosh, it seems so much harder now than it did in the 90s. <laughs> I'm just like, I guess that's just what happens when you've been around. You you see the changes and you just can't imagine like, wow, I can't imagine having to go through that. Uh, I, I I can just imagine like, because it's funny, as you say, if you go back and go back, like an author like Harper Lee sitting there being like, I found it very easy. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know why people are complaining these days. I mean, that's easy as you know you know um but uh it, i suppose there is in a way um i know amazon has made life a, a bit easier uh now it's a different i, I will stress is a different yeah. route it's it that's the self-publishing route um which is of course as as valid but again to all aspiring writers going down there it's different be aware of that and make sure you're good at marketing yeah um, it's, a, it's yeah. a lot more work <laughs> so yes. it seems to be yeah uh, um, which in a way is funny. I mean, I, I guess as well, that's why it's as difficult to get in with a publisher is because a publisher, it, they don't just go write your books out there because they, it's on them as well. They need to recoup whatever investments they put in. So they will then market and they would. that's why it's hard to get in with them because they can't take in 7,000 books a week. Yeah. Yeah. When I've also heard that as it's gotten easier to physically type up a manuscript, the amount of people writing books has obviously gone up. So when you had to write it on a typewriter, that's a lot more effort than writing it in a word processor that you can email, right? Uh, You know, if you write it on a word processor, but you still have to print it off, 
which like when I was coming into writing or coming into publishing, it was just, that shift was just starting to happen where you could submit digitally versus because like I was printing off short stories and I was printing off 30 copies of a short story and mailing it, um, which is a lot more work than just shooting off 30 emails. Right. Um, <clears throat> so I think that, I think, I feel like that may have contributed in some way where you have, more, you've always had people who wanted to write, but it's just physically easier now. And so they have the opportunity to tell their story. But I think as that has happened, like you said, with self-publishing and Amazon, the 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 ways you can publish something have also sort of opened up. So it kind of keeps it keeps it level, but it just changes everything changes. And so when you've been around a long time, you're like, oh, change. It's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know, kind of like change is good, change is possible, but also slow down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, do you find because obviously um, you teach as well? Do you find that the changing methods and the changing outputs does that affect uh, what and how your style of teaching goes across, or do you find that the way that you teach is it more toward the composition and sort of everything else comes later? Yeah, I mean, I mostly teach craft classes, and I don't think that stuff changes a whole, whole lot. Um, maybe if you're getting really into self-publish, the self-publishing world is so different than traditional publishing, even at a craft level. Um, there's a lot more emphasis on writing to market and 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 kind of that sort of thing. Um, but just like basic craft stuff isn't going to change, you know, like characterization and, and dialogue and telling a, a complete story. Um, understanding your genre, all that stuff is pretty much the same. Um, so I would say with that kind of stuff, it hasn't really changed it. Um, but any kind of talk about publishing and in writing classes, students always want to know about publishing. You know, I, I can teach, I'll teach a class, you know, writing, maybe not the erotica classes, but like writing science fiction fantasy. I'm always going to have people who have questions about publishing. Um <clears throat> And that's where I have to kind of say, hey, look, I can tell you what I did, but that was 10 years ago and things are a lot different now. Um, you know, so I kind of always give that caveat um, and then always kind of, but some stuff is also the same. It's like, yes, with self-publishing, you have to invest some money up front, but you own everything. So don't, mm. that doesn't mean you should pay a publisher to publish your book. Like that has always been, you know, never pay for a publisher. <laughs> a publisher pays you. Um, Self-publishing hasn't actually changed that. Um, so I think there's still some things that are universal, but I also just try to be mindful of the fact that like my, my sort of a debut experience is going to be a lot different than what debuts now are experiencing. Just kind of trying to acknowledge that and like, you know, you can, you can talk to people who are a little, who've published their first book a little more recently or been through the query rounds a little more recently, and they'll probably give you better advice than I can. My advice basically boils down to, it sucks. <laughs> don't give up. Like, it sucks. It takes a long time. If you don't give up, like, that's, you know, that's pretty universal advice, but like the nitty gritty details are going to change. That's actually, and, and you're so right, the the universal advice element of that, you're so right. I mean, one of my favourite quotes is, you know, the one where, oh, writing's easy, you sit down at a typewriter and bleed. Um, and I love that one because, I mean, and you're thinking like, how do we sales pitch this? How do we get new writers? And it's because we are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, it's, it's as simple as that. You know, why does somebody write, why does a bird fly? You know, because yeah. they have to. Yeah, I mean, I think I think people like I I've always known that like if I didn't have a publishing deal, 
if I wasn't being published, I would still write. Um, I might not, I might write fan fiction or something, you know, I might write some kind of web novel and just throw it on there and see what happens. Um, but I would still be writing stories and putting them out somehow. Um, you know, when I was a kid or a teenager, I used to write zines, um, like actual oh, yeah. photocopied zines. <laughs> now people say zines and it's like a literal book. I'm like, mm, that's not really a zine. <laughs> actual like zines where I would go and photocopy them at the library and staple them myself. Um, so I think there have always been people who want to write and who want to tell stories and they do that. And maybe they don't show anybody or they find unique ways to get it out, you know, out in the world. Um, however, you know, whatever, if publishing doesn't work, they'll try writing a zine, making a zine. This was like 20 years ago. Um, <clears throat> now we have the internet for that, right? I think that's part of like, that maybe why social media is so popular, because especially something like Twitter, um, that's mm. text-based, you know, people want to write and express themselves. And this is a way for them to do it, even if they would never write a novel, this is still, it's still writing. Um, so that's, that's kind of my, that's sort of my like half-baked theory on it anyway. I no, I like it because it, 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 you're right. And the idea of blogs as well, um, rest in peace, Tumblr. Um, and, <laughs> oh, I still use Tumblr. <laughs> I don't care. I, I, I love that. It, it's just because it was so big and then it seemed to vanish, but it's still there. I, I do remember my, myself, uh, uh, some very emo, posts uh yeah. from you know my i'd love to say my teen years from my 20s <laughs> um uh <laughs> it's like i've got to be honest but um what i now what i want to ask you as well about is it's a genre that i feel is very overlooked and that is erotica because mm -hmm. i think it's very difficult to write that and to have it seen as something that no no I, I i put equal amounts of effort and equal amounts of care into this and you know there will there will be some reviews like i'll oh, put it's just erotica i'm like no it's still hard how have you well first of all how have you found the composition style as opposed to say fantasy or sci-fi and then the reaction oh that's a really interesting question um yeah so i agree first of all i definitely agree um i think that erotica takes just as much effort it's not easy to write in some ways it's harder um especially if you're not doing particularly kinky erotica <laughs> because there's only so many ways to describe what's happening in a sure. way that is both interesting and then also arousing i mean that's part of why people read erotica um is that it has to trigger a physical re response um <clears throat> So there, it has like really unique challenges to it. Um, and a lot of people who write erotica, especially like who are publishing on Amazon and stuff, they're writing it fast. They're doing like a story a week, um, which is really easy to burn out. Um, again, because you're having to find new ways to basically tell the same story over and over again. Um, <clears throat> so it has some of those unique challenges. Um, I've definitely read some very artistic erotica or very literary erotica um, that I think is actually like literate, it's literature, it's really beautiful, um, while also kind of meeting the requirements of erotica, sort of <laughs> baseline requirements of being, you know, sexy or whatever. Um, <clears throat> but so I think that, you know, in terms of it's, it's similar to any other kind of writing, but it does have some unique qualities, mo mostly like you're trying to kind of elicit that. I mean, every, every piece of writing is trying to elicit an emotional response, but erotica is trying to elicit that physical response, um, which can be kind of challenging and everybody's different and what one person likes, another person won't like. And so you have a lot of things you have to kind of 
think about and like word choice is really important in erotica like how raunchy do you want to get um how like how would the character actually say this stuff versus how would I say it or how would somebody who's like trying to write sexy erotica say it um so there's a lot of kind of it's almost like this is not crazy it's almost like poetry in that way and thinking mm. about voice and point of view um <clears throat> in terms of how people react um a lot of honestly a lot of people think it's kind of cool um I'm sure I'm sure I mean I have I run in socials like social circles where people like they're they tend to be writers and they're like oh yeah that's fun um so I don't have a lot of like people who are shocked by it or or disturbed by it or whatever um <clears throat> so I I have actually I'm like I'm not really I'm like I'll, I'll tell people I don't care <laughs> I can see if you are in more conservative spaces um there may be you know a need to kind of keep it a secret or whatever. Um, but I find, I think people are, are a little more open to it than we might think. And I also think writers, I think most writers have probably dabbled in it um, in some way. Um, even if they say they haven't, they, they may not admit it. Um, maybe they've written erotic fan fiction that they'll never tell you about, right? Maybe they've written like just some sexy stories for themselves or for a partner that they don't want to tell you about, which is totally fine. Um, but I do think writers kind of We'll always sort of dabble in it a little bit and just to try it out, even if they're not going to publish it or show it to anybody. Because uh, to pick up on actually something you said, which I think is a perfect description um, in that it's like poetry is that in setting, I suppose this is universal, but in setting any scene, the wrong word in the wrong place just can completely take you out of the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I think would be so such a form of poetry as well. If you are, now, I'm very much not a poet, so I'm going to try to come up with an example. Like, say, if, you know, you know you're know, you describing a flower and, I don't know, you use the words bleach. I don't know. Right. I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not a poet. I'm not a poet. Um, but, yeah, you say something and it just completely shatters the mood straight away. Mm -hmm. You then have the massive problem of, right, well, then everything you say that you have to try and get back to that again so how much constant rewriting is going on and of course that's not to suggest that that doesn't go on in every genre i just feel like would would it be fair to say that erotica is quite a stylized type of i think so and as yeah so like well, what you were talking about if i'm gonna get if i may get a little english teachery here um it really teaches you about connotation and denotation right so the, the there's the dictionary definition of words but then certain words have connotations to the audience and so in erotica especially you really have to think about the connotations of those words especially when you're talking about body parts so like some body part words feel clinical some feel mm -hmm. like sort of sexist and so but some people like that and so you know you know, you know some some feel sexy and others don't feel sexy and so you have to really think about those connotations that's kind of what you're that's sort of what you were talking about you know mm. with like choosing the right words to set the, set the stage um so yeah i definitely think that's that's true and now i forgot what your actual question was i'm so sorry it's it's <laughs> it, in fairness it was a meandering question anyway so it's fine but i i i think you've 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 really kind of you've answered it there it's that you know ha being aware of in a line of 10 words, that one word that just breaks the rhythm, breaks the mood. Um, and actually, that's a fantastic example of using clinical names 
mm. are often just mood shatterers. Right, um, yeah. Yeah. Nobody um, wants to read that in there. Nobody wants yeah. to read the medical terms for body parts or whatever in their erotica. They want to read, they want the sexy words. Um huh. so yeah, that's that's just something. I mean, yeah, it's just and so there the the process is different. Um the other thing I now I remember the other thing I was gonna say that I think was getting at your question um about it being stylized. That's what it was. Mm. Um, is that plots are a lot different in erotica. You 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 can kind of throw plausibility to the wind in a way <laughs> that you can't do in other genres um, because the, the focus is different, which that's kind of freeing in a way. Then of course, it's, you know, now what I really want to see is I want to see your take on Trek erotica. I've got to say this right now, possibly not Prodigy, uh, no. we might we might leave those two things completely separate, yeah. but TNG, which uh, I mean, God knows you need, only need to look at the first season of TNG, I'd say could probably be classed as erotica, a lot of it anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Star Trek erotica has a long storied history. Um, mm -hmm. You can you can find that. I mean, that was part of I feel like a lot of people don't want to acknowledge it, but that was part of what saved it. The original series in the 60s was the fandom, the sort of zine fan fiction fandom that was built around it. Um, <clears throat> Kirk Spock is legendary, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and there was even there was even a tie-in novel in the '80s. Oh, I don't remember what it was called. That got really, really close to being full-on Kirk Spock slash fiction. It wasn't erotica, um, but it got really close to showing them in a relationship. Like it got right up to the line and then pulled back. Um, and it's it's a classic, and I. I cannot remember. I'm sure there's, I'm sure your listeners are like screaming, like someone's probably shouting it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> because it's very well known. Um, so yeah, I was like, if you want, if you want Star Trek erotica, you can find it very, very easily with a, with a quick internet search. But I mean, I think that's part of its history, part of the history of its fandom um, that I think is, is really cool. Um, you know, I think you're right as well like Riza and stuff you know they they, they hint at they, they, it's a it's a syndicated show they can't show much but they hint at it like you know obviously the star trek future i think is meant to be a lot more open than our world so they they show as much as they can that is that is true there was actually uh, as of the recording of this so uh the las vegas convention is just wrapped and seeing some of the cosplays I saw a good friend of mine, Brad, went as that season one Riker, where he's in the ba the, the kind of the draped material and the chest is on yeah. full show. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, yeah. that is brilliant, because I know exactly <laughs> where it's from, and I don't know what that says about me, but I know exactly where it's from, and it was just brilliant. Yeah. It's funny when you said he went as Riker. I knew exactly. I think I pictured it immediately. Like I knew exactly <laughs> what you were going to say. <laughs> so, ah, the eighties. Uh, <laughs> but um, it is, and actually, of of course, you you use the example of you know Kirk Spock. I mean, the, the term slash fiction originated with Kirk and Spock. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I, I really blew my mind when I when I learned that because I I'd, I'd, I'd known the term slash fiction long before I knew the connection. Uh, I think we're going back to 1967. I think we're yeah. going back to the to to then when the first Spurk uh, uh, story was out there, because you know there is romance to be found everywhere. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then there's Gene Roddenberry's novelization of the motion picture and. There's romance to be found everywhere, 
then that's what I'll say. Uh, <laughs> um, do you find then that you know you have you have published uh, erotica, you have published fan fiction, you've published tie-in fiction, of course, you've published your original work as well. So tell us a little bit about your original work and what has what that has inspired. Because I won't ask the question. Everyone, I guess, every writer gets asked the question, why do you write? Where do your ideas come from? Um, and if we knew that, we would market it. So what does that inspire in the, your continued writing? Oh, I like I like the way you phrased that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, my original fiction is sort of all over the place. I mean, it all sort of falls under the science fiction, fantasy, like, speculative umbrella. But I've done all kinds of different things. So I've done, like, epic fantasy. I've done adventure fantasy. I've done science fiction, like, near-future science fiction, far-future science fiction, space opera. I've written for adults. I've written for teenagers, right? Um, I've done romance. <laughs> I've done non-romance. Like, I, I just kind of am all over the place. Um, and I think something you know, every, everything I write, it's sort of, I feel like there's certain like sort of things I like to play around with. I really like to play around with genre and like, you know, okay, I'm going to write a space opera story, but I'm going to do, I'm going to tweak it a little bit and make it a little bit different, um, make it a little, you know, sort of strange. Um, and then I'll do the same thing with fantasy. Um, and I feel like every time I write something new, I'm like, okay, I've done that. Now I'm going to try my hand at something else. So I feel like a lot of times with the, the original fiction, a lot of it is sort of like, trying new things and seeing what it's like to write in different genres or to write different types of stories. Um, and so that when I've kind of written that type of story, I'm like, okay, cool. I know what that's like. So now I want to try something else. So maybe I want to try horror next, or I want to write like a long series because I've actually never written a long series. Um, most of my books are standalones um, or they're like kind of duology kind of things. There's a few that are duologies. They have a sequel. Um, <clears throat> But I've never done like a big long series. So maybe that's something I want to try next. Um, so th that's sort of how I think I would answer the question, what does it inspire? Is it's like I kind of like I'm trying different things because as a reader, I read sort of across the board. I think a lot of writers are like that. Um, and so I always want to try different stuff. You know, I read, I get in a horror kick. And so that makes me want to write horror. Um, and then I'm like, oh, what about Westerns? Do people still write Westerns? Can I write a Western? Like, it's just, that's kind of what I like to how I kind of approach my original fiction. I like that as well. And I, I, I love that idea. It's like, do people still write Westerns? Because <laughs> if, you know, there, there is there is an audience for everything. Absolutely yeah. everything. Like, I'm sure there's probably somebody listening or watching this right now. It's like, I, I, I like Westerns. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and and that's the fun of it. So uh, because also then that's you've actually sort of preemptively answered uh, our next question is, do you kind of do you work more in standalone? Do you work more in series? So it kind of sounds like standalone, but maybe series on the way. Yeah, I definitely like I'm kind of I want to experiment with series. It's always intimidated me um, because I'm some I'm, I'm a I hate this term, a pantser or a discovery writer, right? I kind of write, discover, you know, I sort of write, I don't have a plan, basically. Um, and I always feel like with a series, you have to have a plan to some degree. Like you have to mm -hmm. kind of know where you're going. You can't just wing it. Um, I think that's why Game of Thrones is not finished. Or Song of Ice The first thought that went into my head <laughs> as he said it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why it will never be finished. Um so I'm, I mean, I've, I've been forced to learn to outline, you know, when I first started writing, I never outlined, I refused to use an outline, I might type some notes to myself, and that was it. But like, with the tie in fiction, especially, you have to write to outline, you have to have an outline approved, 
before they let you do it because you can't just like write a whole manuscript of like basically fan fiction stuff that they're like yeah we can't publish this <laughs> so you have to get your outlines approved so that got me used to writing to outline um so I feel a little more comfortable with it so that that is something I, I'm kind of wanting to do in the future is maybe write a longer series um you know and maybe I'll try to do it publishers are kind of pulling away from series so maybe I'll use it as an excuse to experiment with self-publishing a little bit more and sort of see where that takes me so that's I guess I'm my I, I'm kind of view writing as learning in a way and sort of trying different stuff out and seeing what happens um I, I actually I, I love that idea like you know this this idea of writing is learning because the nature of writing is you're going to spend a lot of time on this one story now even if the story is sprawling and huge and everything you're still going to spend so much time in there um and you know let's say there's a character who's a fireman you know right. grant i'm going to learn all about the you know the trade of firefighting or trade yeah it is a trade i guess vocation yeah, yeah okay. there we go yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah what, what what's a fancy word for bloody hard work writing <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> um and i think yeah like when you spend that long on something, I can understand kind of by the end of the project being an expert. Now, the next day, it could be right blanks like, you know, um, so every, every writer is an expert in something for at least 24 hours in their life. <laughs> I think that's true. I also hear people talk about, I think this is true, too, that every you learn to write every book as you write it. Like every book, no book is written the same way. So a process that worked for writing one book won't work for the next book. So, you know, you're learning about the subjects of the books and, and all this stuff. And then you're also just like learning how to write again. Like <laughs> that process is always changing too. Um, you have been so generous with your time. So thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to come up toward the end now. I've I've uh, a big question to ask now in a sec. But before we get to there, can I just ask, what is next for you, for, for the fans who want to know what's coming, what is, or what can you talk about? Or if you have anything that maybe that is like, nda or anything uh you can tell us we promise we won't tell <laughs> yeah i'm i'm in that 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 process where i can't really talk about what i've got next got kind of coming up next um i have some original work that's with my agent um that will hopefully be kind of finalized and go out that's a sort of science fiction horror kind of thing um and then like i said i'm also playing around with writing a series um so that's kind of that's kind of where i'm at now nothing nothing firmed up but stuff is in the pipeline that is great that i know that will be enough for some people to be like yes yes <laughs> um right okay so lovely easy question for you we ask it of all of our guests no thought required nice and simple cassandra clark what does star trek mean to you oh wow so to me <laughs> you lied that is not an easy question um star trek to me star trek to I find Star Trek very comforting. Um, like TNG is my comfort show. Um, you know, if I'm if I'm stressed or having a bad day, I know I can. There's I've got some streaming free streaming thing that literally just shows Star Trek twenty four seven. So I know I can just go put that on, and it'll just show me Star Trek episodes, and I will feel comforted. Um, like especially with TNG, I don't know if it's because I watched it when I was a kid. Like, I don't even mean the episodes. I just like the sounds. The show has a sound, like the sound of the Enterprise is super yeah. comforting. The, the kind of dramatic horn music when they fade to black for the commercial. Like, it's just very comforting to me. And I think 
like I said, some of that is because I associate with my childhood and all of that. But I also think it it provides like a sort of because it provides such a hopeful future, especially those classic episodes, the the you know Star Trek and the original series and TNG. Um, it you know when the world is crazy and it feels like it's like oh my gosh the oceans are boiling right you can kind of mm-hmm. remember in Star Trek like the Star Trek history is that we went through this really humanity went through this really dark period and was able to emerge on the other side and I think that's what's so comforting about Star Trek to me is just that sort of promise of a hopeful future and that even as the show, the show is, I don't know how long ago the 60s were. I can't do math, whatever, 60 years ago. A while ago. <laughs> right? Like even over the course of 60 years, you know, our society has changed, but Star Trek can always has always altered itself to adapt to our society while maintaining that sort of core message of hope. Um, even if it might look different from how it did in the original series, it's still there. Um, and I think that is kind of what Star Trek means to me is like sort of hope and comfort that like things are going to be okay. Um, even if it doesn't seem like it right now. Um, I love that. I love that. Uh, but I, cause I couldn't agree with you more. Star Trek is an idea of hope and it's one that we need. And I don't know, call me naive, but I think we'll get there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that, that's, like I said, that's what I love about it is that, in the, it's not like it was this clear trajectory from 1965 to Star Trek world, right? Like it, it allowed humanity to kind of go to the depths and then rise back up. And I think that, that to me, that is what is so great about Star Trek is that it wasn't just, we landed on the moon and now Star Trek universe, like we actually had to fight to get there. And I think that's what's so reassuring about it. Um, Cassandra, I want to thank you so much for coming on and having a chat with me. You are an absolute superstar. It is so, so appreciated. Um, to everyone who's been watching and listening along, thank you so much. You are wonderful. We will, of course, be back next week with another episode. Uh, in the meantime, I am Sean Ferrick. You can find us on our socials at Clone Star Pod on Twitter, Instagram. I think we're on all of them. Um, uh, Cassandra, where will people reach out to get in touch with yourself? Um, probably the best place is to just go to my website, Cassandra Rose Clark, and that is Clark with an E at the end. Uh, <laughs> um, sometimes I think it's probably easier to just plug it into Google. Um, I am not on social media as much these days, although if you reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, or Tumblr, because I am still on Tumblr, um, I will definitely respond. Um, I just don't post on there as much, but I I monitor them and I'm around, so... Excellent. Excellent. Right. Well, we will put those links in the description of this episode so people can go straight and see everything to do with you. Everyone, thank you so much. You are awesome. Live long and prosper. (laughs) 